Ben, thanks for reading that for us. Let's make our way into chapter two and begin by trying to think how incredible it was for these pagan astrologers to set out on this journey. Try to imagine them gazing upwards constantly, peering off into the darkness, trying to gain some kind of insight and revelation. These magi are people whose very lives, symbolically, are in the darkness. They come from an evil land, probably from the land of Babylon. These are people who are caught up in the blackness of their occultist arts, gazing off into the dark night. And then on one occasion, they see a star which blazes with this unnatural light. There are many people in the ancient East who were fascinated by the study of the stars and the planets. All those different bodies and constellations were given certain meanings. And scholars themselves have spilt huge quantities of ink just trying to work out what exactly was the star of Bethlehem. Now we know that Halley's Comet appeared in the year 12 BC, but that's far too early for what we're talking about here. Some commentators think that this may have been a supernova. Other people suggest that this was a conjunction, a coming together of Jupiter and Saturn, something that happened three times in the year 7 BC. Jupiter was often taken to be a royal planet. Saturn was sometimes thought about as being a Jewish planet. It could well, though, have been a comet that the Magi saw. That's what makes sense of what's recorded here, leading the Magi first of all to Jerusalem and then onto Bethlehem and somehow directing them to one specific house. So back to that far off pagan land, into the darkness there bursts an incredible light that shars these magi with the light of God. This heavenly star compels them to leave behind everything else and to go out in order to follow this light. And the magi obey the summons. They leave the darkness and they go out in search of the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, if you're looking for the king of the Jews, of course, it makes sense to go to Jerusalem, to leave the darkness behind and to go to that place which was supposed to be the great city set up on a hill, giving light to the whole world. Surely, if you would go to Jerusalem, that would be the place where you would find out about the one who was born king of the Jews. Surely in Jerusalem, there would be people there who would be following this star, those there who would be able to point in the exact direction. 
But ironically, when the Magi reach Jerusalem, it's these foreigners from a dark pagan land that actually come to Jerusalem to proclaim the good news. They come into the royal palace and they say, surely you've seen it too. Surely you're getting ready to proclaim this royal birth. But the king in Jerusalem, when he hears of this, he is frightened. He's deeply troubled in his heart. And the whole of Jerusalem is frightened as well. That's because the one who is on the throne in Jerusalem is not actually a true heir to that throne. Herod is an Edomite. Herod is a descendant of Esau. Herod is a descendant of the one who sold his birthright and who gave the blessing away. And Herod would have known what this message from the Magi went. If what they said was true, well then the Christ had come. The one had come who possessed the birthright and the blessings of the throne would surely be transferred over to him. And Herod, Edomite that he was, would surely have known the prophecy prophecy of Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 to 19. Let me read that to you. It's another prophecy given from an unexpected foreigner. It says this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. What a prophecy from so many centuries beforehand. The star will come that will indicate the birth of the one who is to hold the scepter. And the Edomite pretender, he shall be dispossessed. What these pagan astrologers have said does not bode well for King Herod. And so this seed of the serpent, this son of Esau, writhes at the news of the coming of the Christ. He will not lose his glory. He does not want to lose his throne. And so Herod sets out to crush the head of the seed of the woman. He calls together the religious and the civil leaders of Israel. Not one of them is following this star. Instead, all the people in Jerusalem, they are conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed. And these leaders, civil and religious leaders in Israel, 
are fully with Herod right from the very beginning. Herod doesn't need to try to cajole these people. He doesn't need to put force in them so that they'll give up the location where this promised child will be born. They gladly and willingly tell Herod where the child is to be born. They remembered Micah 5 verse 2. He will be born in Bethlehem. These are false shepherds who do not love God's truth. And so they betray our Lord right from the very beginning. Israel has chosen its king and therefore has rejected God as their true king. Israel shares with its king the same hopes and political dreams of earthly glory. This is what Israel has become. Israel, God's own promised land, has become spiritually Edom, Egypt and Babylon. And ironically, it's those who come from pagan lands who are actually the ones who arrive announcing good news. They're the ones who come declaring that the light of God has been revealed. The nations are coming to bring their tribute. The Gentiles are coming to worship the God of Israel while Israel lies in darkness, in fear, and in hatred. It's pagan sorcerers. It's astrologers. Those are the ones who leave behind the darkness to come and worship the one who is the very light of the world. Isn't Matthew's point just really clear in all of this? When Christ was born in Bethlehem, he came into a world of utter darkness. In this scene that Matthew records for us, there is virtually no light at all. Even the city of Jerusalem, it's just become one more dark city in this fallen world. But the darkness is not allowed to overcome the brightness of this light that God has sent. This light that God sends pierces through the darkness and it dispels the darkness of men. Even though Israel has rejected him, the Lord still will have his worshippers. It's all a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Let me read again from the Old Testament, this time from chapter 60, and use this as a lens to just peer down at these verses at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. Isaiah 60 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you 
a nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels from Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring Good news, the praises of the Lord. In this visit of the Magi, the glory of Christ begins to shine out. The Magi are unable to see this hidden glory. The fact that this promised one, this one who has been born in Bethlehem, is God himself. The nations in these magi are coming to worship God, to bow down, and to give him their tribute and their riches. Do you see the way in which the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ turns everything in this world upside down? This small, little, obscure place becomes glorious because Jesus has been born. Pagan astrologers are transformed into the beginning of a worldwide harvest of worshippers who will come to worship this king. The child, the baby, in all his weakness is revealed to be the true king of Israel. And not just king of the Jews, but the king of all nations. The coming of Jesus turns everything upside down. What appears to be strong and mighty in the corridors of power in Jerusalem is shown to be ineffective. And that which appears as weak and powerless is revealed to be God himself. In Bethlehem, there is no royal palace. And yet this one who is born is a true king. So these pagan astrologers become evangelists, testifying to the house of Israel about the good news. Whilst others live in fear and trembling, the Magi have a great joy. And they're warned then in a dream to go back to their own country. Verse 12 by another way. Having seen this light, having worshipped this child, they walk a different path. They return home on a spiritual pilgrimage. If we too want to walk through this life by another way, if we want to follow them in their footsteps, Well, then we need to understand the relevance of the Christmas story. We need to know far more than simply what happened. We need to know why this took place. 
Because without the explanation, we could be so easily confused. And without a true definitive explanation, people could simply explain all of this away. So the light has come. The nations have come to worship. What does this mean? Why has it happened? Let's pick out a few things. First of all, verses 13 to 15. What's happened? Jesus has come to rescue us in the ultimate exodus. That's what's happened. So Jesus was in grave danger from Herod. And so the Lord dispatches an angel who tells Joseph that now is the time to pack up and to flee to Egypt. And Joseph, just man that he is, obeys immediately and without any question. They head to Egypt, perhaps to Alexandria, where at the time there would have been as many as a million Jewish people living in that part of Egypt. And in the story that's recounted here in the flight to Egypt, we need to listen to it really carefully. Because if we tune our ears to what's said here, we can hear some unmistakable echoes of some of the most important events in Israel's history. The second half of Matthew 2 is like a beautiful, rich chord being played on the piano. So many different notes, they sound together to produce something which is really harmonious. Now, lots of you here are bound to have done music exams. You know all about oral tests. You know about you get a chord played for you and the piano. Some people horrified at the very thought of it. You remember you hear the chord and the person at the piano will want you to pick out the different notes that are held in it to identify the chord that you hear being sounded. And that's what we're going to try to do in the rich chord that Matthew plays for us here. Because there are multiple connections to all sorts of key moments in Israel's history. Here, as we listen carefully, there's an echo that takes us back to the book of Genesis. Because just like his namesake, another Joseph has to go down to sojourn in Egypt. Joseph took his father with him. Jacob, to whom God gave the name Israel. And so Israel fled to Egypt for protection. And Egypt was, as you know, a place of huge significance in the Bible. Just mentioning the very place of Egypt would take people back to their roots. Back to the time when Joseph and his father Israel they went down to Egypt and found safety and refuge there. That's like the bottom base note of this chord that sounded out. And then there are other layers that are added on top of this. So Herod's a tyrant. He's intent on slaughtering Jewish babies. And of course, we only need to think about that for a second. And that reminds us of Pharaoh. Another murderous ruler intent on slaughtering Jewish baby boys. So what's going to happen to the deliverer? 
Well, we know that as a deliverer, Moses was hidden and protected. And so too, Israel's last and final deliverer is going to be saved from a murderous king. Just like Moses before him, he was kept safe so that he could deliver his people against all odds. The incident ends with a quotation in verse 15. It's found in Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you went back and read Hosea, you would realize that this is speaking about something that took place in the past. It's a reference from Hosea to the Exodus beforehand. Hosea was talking about how God saw his oppressed people and he called them out and he promised that he would be with them. And the people of God that were led out of the land of Egypt under Moses the deliverer were called my son. Remember Moses' words to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go so that they can come and worship me. I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to bring them to the land of promise. So Matthew thinks of Hosea and he's looking back to that story. But he's looking back to the story and he's going to retell it with a twist. It's as if he's going to invert one of the notes in this chord so that it sounds different on this occasion. This happens all the time with great stories. They operate and they work well because it's a story that we've heard before that's just told to us in a new way that sounds different. Matthew says, out of Egypt... The Lord has called his son. You see, this time, the tyrant is not Pharaoh. This time, the tyrant is Herod, the so-called king of the Jews. And the land that they have to leave in this exodus is the promised land. Because the promised land under a king like Herod, has become like Egypt itself. Hosea 11 is a chapter that laments Israel's sin. God had promised to rescue them from Egypt and he had brought them to the promised land. But from that point on, everything started to go downhill. It happened because of the people's sin. They wouldn't listen to the Lord. They always kept going their own way. But Hosea 11 is this tremendous statement about God's love, even for a people who are persistently unfaithful. The Lord asks in Hosea, how could I ever give my people up? And with deeply emotive language, the Lord says he won't forsake them. He won't destroy them. God promises, I'm going to do what I did in the past. In those years beforehand, When my people were in Egypt under a sentence of death, I called my son out of Egypt. And the Lord says, there's going to be another exodus, an even better exodus, an exodus from a far worse Egypt. There's going to be a new beginning and a fresh start. God would once again deliver his people. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. And this deliverer 
is going to be the one who will bring about the final, the great, the ultimate rescue. So there's far more going on here than simply making connections to Israel's past. Imagine you're recording a scene in a movie and the principal actor that you've got just keeps getting their part wrong. The director weighs in to all these cries of cut, cut, we need a complete retake in this. We need to go right back to the beginning and start it all over again so that this time the main player in the drama gets it right and does exactly what is required. Jesus has come in order to relive Israel's history. Jesus has come and he is going to travel the way that Israel's people have traveled before. It's almost as if he's going to go back and he's going to carefully retrace the steps that the nation of Israel have walked down through the centuries. But he'll get it right. He's going to retrace it in a different way. Jesus will walk the path that they should have walked but failed to walk. That's what Hosea was lamenting about. He was so frustrated, he was so broken that the people would not listen to the Lord. This time, God's son, Jesus, is an obedient son who will listen to everything that his father says. He'll do all that the people of old failed to do. He was going to fulfill all that was broken and missing in the Old Testament. More than that, he did everything that we have failed to do from his cradle to his cross. Jesus Christ was everything that we are not. He's going to be a new and better Moses. Someone who would rescue his people from a tyrant far greater than a pharaoh or even a tyrant like Herod. Jesus is going to deliver his people in the greatest of all exoduses. He's going to rescue his people from sin and death. So what's Christmas about? Christmas is about God sending his son to bring about the greatest deliverance ever imagined. Let's think about it in a slightly different way in verses 16 to 18. Because here we can say that Jesus has come to bring us home to God. This is a homecoming. After Joseph has fled to safety, Herod realizes that the Magi are wise men and they have disappeared and he's enraged. And we now see what Herod's true intention was all along. Herod has intended that he will crush the seed of the woman and as many other children as is deemed necessary. So in paranoia, he sets out to eradicate any potential rival. He issues this malicious edict. It says that every boy under two years of age in Bethlehem and in its hinterland, verse 16, are to be killed. He's looking for one, and so this is horrific overkill. It's a shocking crime, but tragically it's very much in line with everything that we know about Herod. 
Herod's now about 70 years old. And through his life, he had a track record of murdering anyone that he suspected to be a rival. When he came to power, he slaughtered every member of the former dynasty. He even put to death three of his own sons on suspicion of treason. And when he was dying, Herod knew that virtually no one would mourn his passing. And so what Herod decided to do was to round up some of the most prominent public figures in Jerusalem and to hold them until the moment when he died. And then in Herod's twisted logic, upon his death, they would be massacred so that when he died, there would be widespread mourning and lamentation in Jerusalem. And as Matthew records the horrific incident in the Christmas story, the slaughter of the innocents, once again, his mind goes back to the Old Testament, this time to the book of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's as if in the screams of the parents and the grandparents of Bethlehem, Matthew's able to listen carefully and to hear more distant echoes from the past. This is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, and it recalls a time when Israel was paying the price for her sins in exile. Ramah is only a short distance outside Bethlehem, and Ramah was the place that the Babylonians used as a POW deportation camp. So try to imagine the scene. Jerusalem, it is still smouldering in the background. And long lines of people are being herded into this transit camp. It's a staging area where the Israelites are being held before they're taken off to Babylon, where many of them will die in a foreign grave. And in the book of Genesis, Ramah was the place where Rachel was buried. And Rachel's weeping and lamentation over the sin of God's people could be heard down through the centuries, right up to the events which occurred at Jesus' birth. Now, one of the really fascinating, striking things about this reference to Jeremiah 31 is that Matthew here picks out the only dark verse from that whole chapter which is full of glorious light. Because immediately after that verse about Rachel and her tears, Rachel is told to wipe her tears away because the people of Israel are going to come home. Jeremiah 31 is one of the great chapters of the Old Testament. It's a chapter which prophesies to us all the glories of the new administration of the covenant of grace. And when Matthew quoted from the chapter, he wanted any of his readers who knew the Old Testament not to just think of that one verse, but he wanted them to remember the whole chapter and everything that it promised. It said, there's going to come a time in the future when God will bring his people home from exile. So whilst there's weeping and mourning, 
bitter tears of lamentation, there was also that incredible promise that deliverance was coming, that it was on its way. At the time when Jesus was born in Israel, the people were home in the land, but at the same time, they weren't really home. The nation had gone back to Israel in the 6th century BC in 538. And by the year 511, they had rebuilt the temple. They had come home. They were back in the promised land. But it was nothing at all like the homecoming that the prophets had predicted. The prophets had said, when God brings his people home, everything's going to be changed and transformed. And the people knew that that hadn't happened and that the Messiah, the son of David, had not yet really appeared. In some really important ways, it was as if the exile had never ended. The people were back in the land, but they were still in many ways far from God. They were awaiting the great homecoming that the prophets spoke about. That's not just important for Israel. That is really important for us. Because by nature, we are far from God. We've wandered astray and we've gone down our own paths. Like our father Adam, we have wandered off far away into the far country. And the child that we celebrate at Christmas is one who has come in order to bring us home. To bring about this great deliverance that is not merely a deliverance. This is a deliverance that is a homecoming. And homecomings are occasions that are always full of joy. It's one of the things that we love at this time of year. So often people who have gone across um, to other places to study or to work, this is the time when they come home. Everyone cashes in at it. Advertisers, singers, filmmakers, they're all taken up with the fact that so often Christmas is all about a homecoming. Well, imagine the joy of someone coming home, not just for a week at Christmas time, but being brought home, coming back to dwell there forever. Matthew wants us to know that the tears of grief will soon be wiped away because the Messiah has come in order to bring us home. Let's see one last thing briefly in verses 19 to 23. And here I just want to say that Jesus is the promised one in whom are all our hopes. Well, in those verses 19 to 20, after a few months, Joseph has another dream and another commission. Herod's died and he's told to take the child back to Israel. And Joseph had assumed that this meant returning to Bethlehem, back to the city of David. But then he hears about Archelaus. Archelaus was 19 when he took the throne and he was far more violent than even his father. He would become so wicked that Rome would eventually replace him with prefects, with prefects like Pontius Pilate. 
can only imagine what would have happened if Archelaus had caught wind of there being a Messiah in Bethlehem. And so instead of going to Bethlehem, they go to the district of Galilee and to the city of Nazareth. And Matthew tells us that this is in fulfillment of the prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Now, you might get out your concordance or try to search for it on your Bible app, and you will look in vain to find that prediction in the Old Testament. But there's a little clue that you shouldn't even expect it, because look in verse 23, and you'll say that this sums up what the prophets, plural, had been saying. What's Matthew trying to tell us? How is a place called Nazareth connected to all the great expectations of the promised one? Well, Nazareth was an unimportant place in a despised region. It was just a lowly little village. And yet all the prophets had spoken about how the Messiah, when he came, he would first come in humility. He would be despised and rejected. He would not have any beauty of his own. He would be someone who was mocked and ridiculed. And so his father in heaven sends him to this little backwater, to the sort of place that everyone else would look down on. And that's where he would grow up, in lowly and poor circumstances. But there's even more to it. Nazareth got its name from the Hebrew word nezer, which means branch, like the branch on a tree. And some of the clearest prophecies of the Messiah speak about him as the nezer of the Lord, the branch of the Lord. And so he goes to the place with those key letters in its name. The family tree of David in the Old Testament, it had been chopped down with the axe of God's judgment. And all that was left of David's great line was simply this obscure stump. No glory in the stump. David's line seemed to have lost it all. The stump of Jesse looked dead. But the prophet said, a time will come when new life will spring from the stump. A branch would appear from the stump of Jesse. A Nazare of Jesse would grow up and become strong and glorious and be a branch that all the nations of the world would find refuge under. And Jesus would do this because he was the suffering one. The one who was despised and rejected. Just as the innocents were slaughtered in Bethlehem, so Christ, the innocent one, would be slaughtered and died. But he didn't die for his own sin. He had always walked the path of blessed obedience. And so he died in order to bring us home. This was the fulfillment of all that was promised. He died to rescue his people from slavery to sin and death. And today he stands as the fruitful tree, the true one to come out of Nazareth, the great tree of the Lord. And underneath him, under the shadow of the branches of this tree, we have everything that we need. Under him, 
we're safe and secure forever. So into our dark, dark world, God has sent his light. And it turns everything in this world upside down and on its head because this one who has been born has come to rescue people from sin. He's come as the one who would bring his people home. He's come as the one who is the very hope of all the nations. Let's bow for a brief prayer. Father, the facts of these stories are things that we know, but we long to delve deeper into the meaning of these things. So do grant us insight. Help us to listen carefully to your word. And even as we hear its majestic, rich chords, help us to identify and really wonder at the individual notes that sound within them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.